What is up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning Wise Cracks Movie Podcast. Was that Show Me the that Meaning was, backwards? That was yes. Backwards. Okay, yeah, that's very good. Kind of. That's yeah. It, Thank you. Yeah, it's very, very, very good. Apparently, we have the element plutonium two forty one and the turnstiles mm-hmm. uh, in the uh, Wisecrack Studios. So anyway, I'm Austin, and I am here joined by the Show Me the Meaning crew. As always, we have Raymond. Hey, what's up, everybody? And we have Ryan, or uh, Nair. What up? What else, film fans? <laughs> yeah, Nair, Nair, Nair and Damariar um, are joining <laughs> us today. And uh, if you couldn't tell by this really butchered intro, we are going to be talking about the new Christopher Nolan film, or I guess it's new-ish since it came out last year, but I guess it's new for a lot of people, Tenet. So as we do on Wisecrack, we tend to cover pretty much everything that Nolan has done. We've done a whole trilogy of videos on pretty much all of his films. I don't remember if, if we've done one on Dunkirk yet, but we did one all the way up to um, uh, Inception. And then uh, we've also tackled all of his films on podcasts, and we've talked about him a lot. As you guys remember, Jared like loved Christopher Nolan, so we always were delving into the depths of this man and his brother's minds. So uh, we're going to do that once again. Uh, it's, as I said, directed by Christopher Nolan. It stars John David. Washington, Elizabeth Debicki. I don't know how you pronounce that last name. Um, Elizabeth Debicki. Debicki. Uh, Robert Pattinson and Michael Caine, who's in every single thing now that Christopher Nolan ever does. Kenneth Branagh. Um, Good luck charm. Yes, yes, yes. So, yeah. So let's go around and let's talk about first impressions before we try to do some kind of recap that makes any kind of conceivable sense. And then we'll start delving into this film. So let's start with Ryan. Ryan, what were your first impressions? I don't know how many times you've seen this, but what did you think about Tenet? I've seen it uh, twice. And um, I, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. I pretty much hated this movie. <laughs> oh my god! I, 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 this is by far my least favorite of his movies. I think he... You know, you swing big sometimes and you miss big sometimes. And to me, this was a huge miss. And he, when I first saw it, my first impression when I first saw it was Chris Nolan has lost his fucking mind. What has happened to him? You know, because I, I like had a visceral hatred for, for the movie cinematically, meaning I, there's big ideas that, that I thought were cool that, that would be cool in a better movie, I guess, if that makes sense. But the way it was presented, the 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 ex- crazy ex- exposition. I, by the end of it, I did not give a shit about what was going on at all. Mm. Like like e- as cool as and intricate as the plot was, and that is on him. All right, you know, and a, a lot of his movies, I think he tries to layer so much stuff going on and so many ideas, and and also have be cutting back and forth to different scenes. Uh, uh, in sequences a lot, which is effective. Like I thought Inception was cool, even though a lot of people complain about the exposition in that one. But I think that that's like a way better like introduction to a crazy world um, that we that we're not that used to. But also everything that we're learning is moving the plot along a little bit. Yeah. Here, no, I, I I I reject the way that he presented this movie. Wow. I don't like it. And too long, way too long. Way too loud. In a, I, I love loud movies. This movie was too loud. Loves loud movies, folks. Yeah, and yeah, you couldn't a hear a lot of the dialogue yeah. even sometimes. Which 
Yeah. Which fuck? Why not? You know, he he has <laughs> he can make some movie better than this. Anyway. Yeah. I hated it. Do you normally enjoy Goodbye. Nolan films? Like, are you a fan? Yes. Would you say? I'm a big fan. Okay. I'm a big fan. I like a lot. I like his movies more than most people. I did not love Dunkirk as much as a lot of people did. I and I think that at the end of the day, he needs a better writer. Is my conclusion. He needs his brother mm. or David S. Goyer to write, you know, a Batman movie for him. <laughs> he doesn't. He can't write his own movies worth shit, as far as I as far as I can tell. He needs a better writer. Okay, Raymond, opinion. what do you think? Um, you know, I'm not a big Nolan fan. Um, and from the first teaser for this picture, it seemed like the most morbidly Christopher Nolan movie ever made. Uh, so. It wasn't at the top of my list. I figured uh, we would cover it eventually, so I just sort of waited around for that. And uh, here we are. Uh, watch this movie. Uh, you know, I'm with Ryan on this one. I, I wouldn't say that I hated it. I actually think there's a lot in this film that is commendable. I think that uh, Christopher Nolan is a, a marvelous technician. Um, but I would agree with Ryan. I, I think that uh, he... He kind of shoots himself in the foot with the script a lot of the time. And and that's not to say that there's, you know, plot holes and all that kind of stuff. I think that he he really cares a lot about the time travel mechanics in this and getting all that stuff right. You know, he, he consults with uh, the guy's name is Kip Thorne. He consulted on Interstellar as well. I think he's like a, a Nobel laureate or physical or a, a, a theoretical physicist. Um so he he puts in the legwork for all that stuff, but when it comes down to the the basic human emotion, the basic stakes, <laughs> that's that's kind of the thing that always trips Christopher Nolan up. And uh, like like I said, I think this it, this film has some commendable aspects to it. I think it may be sincerely one of the most technically ambitious films ever produced. But I just wish that was all in service of something with. Uh, uh, a little bit more heart or a little bit more humanity. That that was a good way to put it. It, it. It's, it's, it holds up to itself. It's, it makes sense in and of itself, but at the same time, it is as a piece of entertainment. That's debatable. Okay. So I didn't dislike it as much as both of you. I went and saw it in the theater. Oh. Actually, did you guys see it in the theater or on just on your, yes, I no. saw it. Well, I saw it at the drive-in the first time. Oh, sweet. Okay. That'd be kind of fun. I mean, I saw it in the theater here in Sydney because you know, um, our lockdowns aren't as serious and whatnot. So, but it was funny because it was just me and my girl and there was nobody else in the theater. And so we were able to like, just obnoxiously talk to each other throughout. Like, what the fuck is going on? Like, do you want, like, she looks at me and she's like, do you understand this? I'm like, I'm writing a book on the philosophy of time and I'm a little bit confused right now, you know? <laughs> so like, that was kind of nice that we could, and she's from Brazil. So English is her second language. So she's like, I'm having a hard time understanding this. And I'm like, no, I think it's the mix because I'm having a hard time understanding a lot of this too. So I, I, I went through it and I was a little bit frustrated with some of it. And then I kind of just kind of got into it. I kind of enjoy a puzzle and I enjoy a little bit of um, kind of nerdy scientific poetry. And I think that's kind of what we got here. Like it's not scientific and it's not poetic as in like narrative or like Terrence Malick or something like that it's not like that right um and it isn't like a nice narrative like you just said there's a lot to say uh about how he doesn't write characters very well and they have a human relationships aren't all that great all the time 
So that was was missing. And then, of course, the science is kind of like, oh, it's theoretical and it's speculative, but it's kind of fun to play with. But kind of that hodgepodge of where they all meet together, I kind of just got into it by the end, and it, I just let it kind of be weird and baffling. And then I was talking with a friend who's a pretty critical film watcher and director. Um, I've mentioned it before. His name's Keir Seward. He's an award-winning director based in London. And he's kind of like, just watch this movie as though it's like a Bond film and don't worry about the plot and don't 100%. try to let it make sense and just like freaking enjoy the the kind of the evil villain that's trying to take over the world because he's got cancer and he's like, fuck it, I'm just going to throw a match into this, this fucking powder keg and blow it all up. And then you've got the guy that's doing the crazy impossible thing. You know, he's like, just think of it like that and then you can kind of enjoy it. And so on my second watch, that's what I did. And to be fair, I watched it at 1.5 speed as well um and (laughs) why do you guys keep doing this (laughs) well i had already seen it i had already seen it ain't nobody got time for tenant i had (laughs) i had already seen it and so i knew what my first impression was and i was like i just want to kind of like be exhilarated by the ride and you know what at 1.5 speed thinking of it like a bond film i actually kind of enjoyed it so that's what i'm just gonna say well, Chris, Christopher Nolan uh, idolizes the Bond films, and he has said explicitly like that he took this as his opportunity to make a Bond movie from the, uh, you know, the the handsome protagonist, the 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 gadgets and the globe trotting and the state of the art watercraft exactly. and all this stuff that's like being squeezed into this movie. And I get that, but that stuff also doesn't really feel like a full meal to me in a Bond film. It, you know, I think it fails in the same way that Bond movies fail, which is that there's still kind of a, a personality vacuum at the middle of it. Okay, well, before we start unpacking this, let's just try to give a recap for our listeners. And I'll be honest, this is kind of a cheating recap this time around because this is kind of a batshit crazy plot. So here we go. Yeah, otherwise it'd be two hours long. Yeah. The fucking recap. Yeah, yeah. So John David Washington plays the protagonist, a CIA agent participating in an extraction operation as the film opens in an opera house. His life is saved by a bullet unfiring. Later, he's recruited by an organization called Tenet, and they brief him on a technology that uses inverted entropy to move backwards through time. Are you following? Follow with this here. I'm going to try to... It's, it's confusing. Sure. Here we go. <laughs> now, yeah. this is what explains the unfiring bullet. These bullets are then traced to an arms dealer in Mumbai, who then leads them to her source, who's the Russian oligarch Andre Sater, played by Kenneth Branagh. Now, the protagonist then teams up with Robert Pattinson, whose name is Neil, and they head to London, where they track down Sater's wife, Kat, who's an art appraiser, who's being blackmailed by her husband to control her in their relationship. Neil and the protagonist hatch a scheme to steal this drawing that's being used in the blackmail setup, and while they're there, they fight these two masked men who emerge from the turnstile, which is a machine that can invert the entropy of objects and people and make things go backwards, right? And then, of course, later we find out, spoiler, that these two people were actually Neil and the protagonist, okay? So just keep that in mind. Anyway, the protagonist is now teamed up with Pattinson. Oh, I'm sorry, I said that already. Okay, here we go. We're going to jump forward here. Even I'm getting confused in my own recap. Uh, so oh my so I went backwards. I went through the turnstile. Cat 
the wife of Seder, then introduces the protagonist to Seder, who plans to kill him until the protagonist saves his life. Then they decide to strike up a partnership to retrieve a case that contains plutonium-241, which is the element responsible for entropy inversion. But Neil and the protagonist go rogue and steal the case. However, they're ambushed by an inverted Seder who's holding Cat hostage. The protagonist gives Seder an empty case and saves Cat, but is later captured and taken to a warehouse with a turnstile. Again, that technology that you go through that inverts the thing, right? Bad things end up happening, Cat gets shot, and this leads to the protagonist going through the turnstile and moving backwards through time to fix all of the shenanigans. Neil then reveals later on that he too is actually a part of Tenant. They then learn that Seder is collecting these artifacts around the world to try to create an algorithm that will invert the entropy of the whole Earth. Cat tells them that Seder is dying from cancer, so basically he's going full-on chaos, chaos maniac here, and they gotta stop him. You dig so far? Okay. Then at the end, Tenet, the organization, they track down the algorithm in Siberia where it's heavily guarded, and then a war of forward-moving and backward-moving people breaks out. Cat kills Seder right as the protagonist secures the algorithm. Neil and P, the protagonist, break up the algorithm and they end up parting ways. And then Neil reveals that he was actually recruited by the protagonist in the future and has been moving backwards this entire time. And then the big reveal at the end is that, in fact, the protagonist was the mastermind behind Tenet this entire time. Well, the future him, that is. Did I, did I do it? Is that kind of it? Brown. <laughs> really makes you think. Eh, folks? So who is the real protagonist? All right, here. Before we get into breaking this down, we got to give a shout out to our sponsor for this week's episode, Skillshare. Look, no matter what 2021 brings, it's been a chaotic year so far. One thing you can do is spend it creating something meaningful with Skillshare's online classes. Because look, time is what we make of it. So Skillshare is an online learning community that offers membership with meaning. With so much to explore, real projects to create, and the support of fellow creatives, Skillshare empowers you to accomplish real growth. So we've talked about them before, but they've got some really cool new classes that they're super excited to share amongst their library of old ones. If you're interested in film, if you're interested in filmmaking, indie filmmaking, drone filmmaking, making films on your iPhone, editing, etc., etc., they have all these wonderful classes that you can take and then these communities that you can participate in to help each other out and maybe even connect with to make future projects. How sick would that be, right? It's always difficult to find like-minded people that want to do cool indie stuff. So that's one of the great things you can do with signing up for Skillshare. They've got these other classes um, about like unleashing your creativity, DIY product photography, uh, the benefit of placing plants around your house, iPhone photography, um, all kinds of amazing things. So go check out Skillshare and you can bring color, beauty, and fun to your year and you can explore your creativity at Skillshare.com slash SMTM as in show me the meaning. That's Skillshare.com slash SMTM and you'll get a free trial of their premium membership. So that's Skillshare.com slash SMTM or you can click the link in the show notes. All right. So... What do you think, gents? What do we have to say about Tenet? Let's start unpacking. Let's start peeling the layers back. I think Ryan, Ryan was about to say something. What do you got, Haley? Who's the real protagonist of Tenet? Is the, it protagonist the protagonist is the Tenet? people, the friends that we made backwards all along. Along the way. Along the way. <laughs> yeah. It's time? 
itself. You know, I will say something about John David Washington. He was he was the first person cast Great in this actor. movie, and that yeah, fine actor. Um, and I I think that there is like a scrap of characterization with him that there's that scene when he's talking to Michael Caine and Michael Caine says something snarky at the end of it about, you know, if, if you're going to play a billionaire, you can't do it in a Brooks brothers suit or something like that. And I can't remember what John David Washington's, uh, response is, but it, it has the attitude of like, Hey, I, I don't tell you how to count your money and eat caviar. Don't tell me how to spy. And, I wish the movie had leaned more into that, that this is a guy who's, like, trying to do the right thing, but he's not necessarily out of his depth so much as just, like, having to question the this sort of upper echelon society that he has to run around in and, and all these connections that he has to make, having to play someone that he finds, like, really despicable or... I like I, I like that sort of fish-out-of-water approach with the character, and I just... I wish there was more of that to his characterization, and I kind of wish that Elizabeth Debicki had a similar energy, because they maybe that could have been the thing that made them recognize each other as kindred spirits, that like, hey, we're both kind of strangers in a strange land, and then you add all the science fiction stuff on top of that, and then the two of them could be like each other's sort of hum human or emotional anchor in all the chaos, that like... You know, because him being so so driven to protect her and uh, what what was the, the that one line in the movie where uh, somebody goes like, eh, if this if this whole fucking thing blows up, the entire world will be obliterated, and she turns <laughs> to the camera and she goes, including my son, and there's just it, it, there, the the whole thing is so like freighted with this weird obligation towards her son that like this guy just met her. Why does he feel this obligation more so than to humanity at large? And I wish there was something that they that that they could connect on. That they they had you know, like I said, maybe uh, some side eye moments where they're like, "Are we really sort of? Do we really have to brush elbows with this pe these people in addition to saving the world? Like, can't we just roll up our sleeves and get this shit done? Why do we have to play act billionaires the whole time?" I totally agree that that whole part and them coming back to uh, her and the son was way overdone and pretty cheesy, I thought. But then also back to uh, uh, is it David Washington? What's his John, full name? John John his David Washington. John David John Washington. David Tennant. Uh, <laughs> yeah, John De uh, Denzel Washington's son, and and I thought he was so good in Black Klansman, right? And he and he he played such a kind of a weird character. That had a strange personality where I'm like, did Spike Lee direct him to be like that? Or did he come to the set with that? That whenever I knew that he was going to be the lead in this movie, I was like, sick. You know, uh, this guy makes bold choices. And not saying he didn't uh, uh, live up to it. It's just kind of like you were saying, it, to me it was a little bland. Yeah. Which I guess is Chris Nolan's flavor of, yeah. of every one of his movies. It's, he was trying to... I it, it to be a little bland, everyone. Just be a little, just no, not really remarkable. It's mainly about <laughs> my plot. Yeah, I, I'm yeah. wondering I'm wondering what like the directing notes were. Is he more like, is it like, hey, right. I want you to be cool and I want him to be aloof and I want him to be impassioned or something? Like, I was, I'm, I'm trying to figure out because it was like this constant steely demeanor the whole time. And I, too, thought that we lost a little of his charm and charisma. And I, that's yeah. one of the things that Bond has that you would want 
that you would want any sort of like knockoff or, or imitation to also have, right? Is there some sort of charm, charisma, there's a magnetism. And I felt that that, that, that was lost a little bit with this character. Even even Robert Pattinson had it a little bit, but that's just because I think he puts it on, yeah, right? He's a, he's a pretty smooth operator. Yeah, but, but I think I wonder if Nolan like intentionally was like, you know, deliver this line as like a throwaway, you know? I'm like trying, like what was it? it like Like be cooler, you know? Unaffected. Yeah, I, I, I think he wants some. I, I think that this guy's supposed to be hardcore. You know, he he went and and was he yeah. literally took takes a cyanide pill in the first like scene. Right. Right. So you're like, all he's right, this guy yeah. will do anything for the mission. Right. So I guess he's supposed to be just cool as ice, under pressure. But then that's not that fun to watch over a th- literally two and a half hour long movie. <laughs> when it, you know, with I don't know, it just didn't yeah. work. And that, that also being the way the character is introduced, I don't necessarily know that it contrasts with his obsession with this one woman and her kid, but it's like, this is a guy who is willing to put mission above self to the point that he, you know, lunges out of his chair to swallow a silver cyanide capsule. I, I don't I don't understand why this just random relationship with this woman and her son is is all of a sudden what's animating him when... It seems even beyond what we see in the movie, he's still predominantly animated by, like, get this fucking mission done. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. he's the one who brings Tenet all together. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I do. I really do like John David Washington as, as an idea in this. I think hmm. he has such a... <laughs> no, I mean, sincerely, I think he has such an interesting presence. You know, he's... He's like this absurdly athletic guy. He's a former professional football player, and when when he goes what? into yeah, he is. He used to he used to play in like the United Football League, I think. Damn. Um, okay. And when he's in that kitchen scene and he's roughing up all those goons, even though they all are a foot taller than him, you kind of believe it. There's a there's a weird physicality to the guy, and he has this great presence, this really commanding presence. But I just, I think a lot of his, like, his magnetism and his energy is kind of dampened by the the sort of mandate of this film's plot. And I think that's a problem with a lot of Christopher Nolan's movies, moreover, is that his characters just become plot mechanisms. They, they're just people in beautifully tailored suits to whom a plot happens. Mm. And I, I think that's to his film's detriment a lot of the time. Mm. I mean, so what... What is the plot of this film? Like, what is? I mean, not not just the, like what's the what's the designing <laughs> you principle? Read it earlier. Yeah, like what's what's the point of this film? What's actually the story? Well, that's time's a bitch. That's the that that but that's the problem, Austin. You hit on something very earnest because if you ask me like what the the plot of like Casablanca is, I wouldn't say oh, it's, uh, you know, about some letters of transit that are uh, changing hands and eventually someone might use them to leave Morocco. No, like, Casablanca is about a, a, a cynical soul who's uh, uh, fighting against his own self-interest because he's compelled to redeem himself in the eyes of a former lover. And right. uh, then he does a good deed in a weary world. And, like, <laughs> but if you, ask, yeah. if you ask me what the plot of Tenet is, I give you the first answer. I say uh, it's about some guys with a little turn... turn time turner thing and yeah, they're trying technical. to save the world from right. they're trying to save the world from a war and uh you know they got to go backwards and forwards to make sure that that war doesn't happen in the future uh but well who who are these people uh, i i don't know they're the ones who are trying to prevent the war so root for them i don't what, what do you want from me go 
pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Like this movie um, this movie feels like watching a f- and this is not to denigrate sports. I'm not a huge sports fan, but if I were to turn on a football game, I would know what was happening, but I wouldn't have a rooting interest. I don't have a team. Mm. There there aren't any players that I feel attached to. And that's what it feels like watching this movie is just kind of like well, you know, this is these these are the good guys. They're trying to prevent the war. I get it, but I don't I don't have a rooting interest. I don't I I don't know these people. I don't. There's no reason for me to be compelled to spend time with them and go on this journey. And that's I mean that's why we watch movies. Right? Yeah, usually like this is what like it, it's interesting you brought up Casablanca. So John Truby is a, a really well known script doctor who has written a book called like The Anatomy of Story, and he basically like deconstructs scripts, right? So he looks at like what are all the best plays, the best novels, the best films that have ever been written. And he says, like, what are the common elements in them? And he boils it down to, I think it's like 21 or 22, but then there's like these essential seven points that he says that every story has to have. And it really starts off with that they're really protagonist-driven. And this protagonist has to have some sort of um, faults, some sort of psychological and a moral fault. Like, so that's like a personal thing, but also his place in the world or her place in the world is also off somehow. So that's the question here is if that's the case, right? And then that's what leads to like, you know, the struggles, the battles, the obstacles. That's what leads to like the final self-realization or the self-revelation. And then that changes the world. You can never go back to the way the world was before because now you have changed forever and uh, you now are like a new person. And so that's what the stories leave us um, on. That's like the arc, right? So, but what happens here with, with John David Washington? And is it partly a problem because of the time thing? Because there's also a sense in which it's playing with forward and backwards, so it doesn't give us enough of a fleshed out character. But like, what's his, what, what are the demons that are driving the protagonist, right? Is it just simply that he's like, oh shit, there's this crazy technology and I don't understand it? Is it that I'm trying to be a good government worker and defend my country? Like, I don't really think that that's really fleshed out. And so there's no real emotion emotional stakes for us to get involved in because we don't see his psychological lacks, right? Like a character like House in the TV show House is like perfect. He's a, he's a protagonist, but he's kind of a dick, right? But the thing is, is we, we understand why he's a dick because he's addicted to pain pills because he's got this crazy crap. And so you, you kind of root along with him because you can empathize with him. Even though when he treats people badly, you don't root for him to treat people poorly. You're kind of like, fuck man, maybe this time will be the time that House doesn't doesn't treat his staff poorly, but of course he does. But you know what? He saves the freaking day and he always diagnoses the problem and he always wins, right? Except mm-hmm. every once in a while, they got to give him a loss. But, but it's stuff like that. You've got to give us something to really hook into with the protagonist. And I just don't know what that is in this story. And maybe that's why it feels cold and dry and simply technical. Well, the other thing uh, about I, this too oh, is, oh, sorry. Um, but the, the, the other thing is not just the emotional stakes, but the real stakes because as far as i can tell they've been i mean the implication in the film is that they've been tinkering with this timeline constantly and so in my mind it's like okay fight like are they are they gonna fail are they gonna succeed like who knows who cares if they fail they can just turn the hourglass over and make us watch another bad movie like it, that's that's what's so frustrating and it's why i think time travel is very very difficult to use in in narrative fiction when when used well it's wonderful but I think it does present that problem that like, okay, well, if you have the uh, the Harry Potter time turner in here, then you can always have another bite at the apple or another swing at the bat. Like mm. it, it kind of deflates the situation, deflates the stakes for me at least. Mm. I like the, I, I like the idea of, of this guy. We, we, when we meet him, he's thrust in this new world and we're kind of learning about 
uh, the world with him and, and how this whole thing operates. And then and, and we really don't know much about him. And then at some point we realize, oh, shit, uh, it's the reverse. He, he actually is a super important person. And, <laughs> and all this was kind of planned. I like that idea in principle, you know, but as it, it really, uh, like I said at the beginning, I found myself uh, not not being intrigued and, and and being surprised by every new revelation. It was more just like, what? Like you were saying, you were turning to the person next to you going, do you understand what's happening kind of thing? And then you kind of pick it up, the pieces as it's going because he's sprinkling clues. But that process wasn't that fun. Um, and and uh, we actually had a really insightful comment here in the comments. KRP said, Nolan just woke up one day thinking it'll be awesome to have some backward shots and that's it. And then he wrote a lame <laughs> script around it. And I don't think that I'm not that cynical to think that that's totally true. But part of me thinks that this was Nolan. He had he's like, you know, one day I want to make a backwards movie. No one's really made a good backwards movie before. And <laughs> well, it, Nolan has. I would like to see a good Nolan backwards movie. Nolan has made a good this backwards no. movie. Yeah. It's fucking Memento. That's a great backwards movie. Okay, but what I what I mean by a real backwards <laughs> yeah. movie is a, is with with yeah. backwards photography. And, and oh, yeah. even Inception had some cool It's just Christopher some, Nolan uh, and Tom Green. Slow down photography. <laughs> yeah. Um, so no, I, I agree with you, Ryan. I think that Christopher Nolan's someone who puts the cart before the horse. He kind of yeah. drops, he, he, he has like a visual conceit and then he tries to build a whole thing around it. And I, I, I don't know. I'm just kind of sick of watching movies where it's like a bunch of people in uh, bespoke suits chase each other around while they pontificate about like whatever Wikipedia articles Christopher Nolan has been skimming lately. Uh, see, I, I I wouldn't say that I even don't like that genre of movie. I think that that can be cool. Like, it can like be really he's cool. made some, yeah. <laughs> some movies like that. It's just that it's just like it's, he swung and he missed on this one. And uh, like Interstellar is kind of like that. It's a lot of big ideas, but there's kind of that emotional also Matthew McConaughey family uh, uh, to bind everything to get the ideas together. This doesn't have that at all. Austin, what are you going to well, say? Well, I was going to say, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure he does have, like, the visual cart that he's putting before the kind of proverbial story narrative horse. But I wonder if it's also that he's just such a conceptual thinker, right? Like, that's one of the reasons why Wisecrack has found so sure. much material to unpack in Nolan's films is yeah. that the Batman Begins trilogy is really, I think, what turned a lot of people's attention to him, even though he'd been doing it for years prior. Um but, like, really, it was like, oh, gosh, he's, like, intentionally drawing from philosophy, from sociology, from anthropology. He's using – he's designing these characters to kind of fit into these formal molds, right? So I think it's really it's, – it's concept before content for him. And I think what you have here is a couple of concepts. One, he wanted to make a time travel film. But he wanted to do it in, one, in a way that got rid of all of like the mysticism, that got rid of the metaphysics and the philosophy, but that was grounded and rooted in physics, in science, right? Which is what he starts in Interstellar exploring, and then he wants to then take it further here. So he's like, I'm going to do the real time travel movie, right? And then he's also saying, wow, there's this really interesting history. If we do that, then we're talking about some interesting discussions about free will and determinism, which get us to start thinking about why are we here and how are we here? Maybe there's this timeline that extends infinitely in, in directions that are kind of like beyond us. And this is where I think there's another interesting concept, 
where I kind of found some interesting information to chew on. One, the clue is in the title of the film, Tenet, T-E-N-E-T, both ways, right? Ooh, great, yeah, it's a word that's what? spelled forward the same and backwards. Again, time, forward, backwards, interesting. But do we know where this word comes from? It comes from the Seder Square. Now, the Seder Square yeah. is an ancient tablet that had all of these, and then here's the interesting thing. What is the oligarch's last name? Seder. Rotas. And Seder. What is his company? Rotas. And the then opera. they go to the opera and they steal a painting from Arepo. Mr. Arepo. And right. it's like, this is how eighth graders write stories. No, no, but here's they, the interesting they... thing. Okay, yes, yes, but here's the interesting thing. What was the Seder Square for? Well, it was used in early Christianity to try to make a statement about the Alpha and the Omega, which is the beginning and the end in in Christian theology, right? And so what you have in opera and Arepo is an Alpha and an Omega. So there's um, uh, an intentional religious meaning that was used later on, not in the original Seder Square, but later on by Christians who appropriated it. And I think what Nolan is doing, is because what I think he's been doing for the last couple years, is making his comments that are sort of like, not death of God, not atheism in like the like kind of like new atheist, like I'm trying to be like, fuck God sort of thing. But we can understand the world. We can understand how we got here. We can understand meaning and love and beauty and truth. And we can also understand mystery and time travel and all these things, but without having to appeal to anything outside of the material universe. And so for, him, for me, I think that was what I found that was interesting about what he's doing here, is he's trying to ground all of this stuff that has a mystical past and he's trying to root it in just simple materialist science. That's what and I like. I, yeah. I dig that. I love, I, I genuinely love that Christopher Nolan is such a dork. I think it's kind <laughs> of cool that I do. I think yeah, yeah, it's yeah, kind yeah. of Me cool too. that the most powerful filmmaker, arguably the most powerful and one of the most influential Easy. filmmakers working today is such a fucking dork. Yes. But I think that he, I, I, I'm just kind of like, tired of people extending him the benefit of the doubt because like oh he's he's playing with these big concepts and stuff i can't remember who said it but there's this is old quote or maybe it's just an aphorism lost to time or or the the etymology of which is lost to time but uh there's an old filmmaking quote that the the greatest special effect is emotion and i think that he's he's doing this incredible technical stuff. I think he belongs in the pantheon of great screen wizards right next to Georges Méliès. I think he's a wonderful magician. But if, if you have this vacuum at the center where the heart should be, all of that stuff is kind of in service of nothing. Hmm. And, and I agree with you. I think all that stuff is far out. You know, it's, it's cool to dig into this stuff and read about it and, and, and try and mind meld with the guy. But, I, I mean, when it comes to, like, it, he's been criticized a lot for his uh, depiction or lack thereof of women in, mm -hmm. in his films. And uh, I think there, there are things like that that are just so eye-level, that are so basic, that if you are willing to go to the trouble and put in all this time and effort and talent and energy into changing what you can do on the big screen, which I think after watching the behind the scenes feature about the making of this movie, I really genuinely do think like this movie's kind of one of a kind. I just don't think there's any excuse to not be doing the easiest and best special effect. 
and there's not there's not any excuse to to not be giving serviceable roles to women or if you're going to make movies about men then stop paying lip service or making these vague gestures towards female characters and just make your make fucking Glenn Gary Glenn Ross in space I don't give a shit yeah. like some some movies are about men <laughs> yeah <laughs> but but it's kind of it's kind of weird that every time every time he tries to bring in like family and and uh and female characters they're always they're always just as uh, a motivation for a handsome man at the center of the plot it, it just it's stuff like that where i'm like you can do so fucking much with your movies but i just think there's an arrogance to him that he won't bring in someone to 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 help him rewrite a script so that uh, so that the people act like people before we go to ryan i just gotta say Glenn Gary Glenn Ross in space is my favorite <laughs> idea for a movie ever. And Jeff Nichols, if you are out there, you can make that film. I know. Wow, that's a great director poll. That's, that's a what great I'm choice saying. For, for Glenn Gary Glenn Ross in space. <laughs> Selling condominiums on Saturn. I, can't I don't think it, it, like every movie needs to have uh, uh, an emotional character that that binds it all together as it might make it seem like that for me, but uh, uh, from what you heard, but really, I mean, think about like like Stanley Kubrick, right? Which I think Christopher Nolan would maybe get compared to some today. He's like kind of a right. cold, yes. emotionless, fil- technical filmmaker, and um, and you know, two thousand one you don't fucking remember those two characters and stuff in it. And that's kind of, we've talked about yeah. it on this show before. It's, 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 it's a technical Marvel. You feel something at the end of it, but you're not necessarily invested in like the, the humans on screen. I think mm-hmm. that's fine. Not every movie needs to do that. But when you make a two and a half hour long movie and, and, and you are sprinkling in things that it seems like we're supposed to know uh, about this character and that he's important. And then at the end we do find is important but then you don't. You, then you kind of make him an emotionless person. To me, that's a weird choice. Where uh, uh, and unnecessary. You, you, if you had had, I don't know, like Inception. The, uh, I, I, I remember reading interviews with him uh, where he was saying, like, "Yeah, I needed Leonardo DiCaprio because this movie was so technical. I needed somebody with like a face and a, a, a personality that people trusted as like a guy that is like you'll be on this journey with him." And I think that this movie needed something like that. You needed somebody with a personality that you could uh, spend two and a half hours going uh, on the journey with. And then at the end, when it turns out that he's a big deal, you care. Yeah, I think Mm. this is a pretty big movie to ask John David Washington to carry at this point in his career. But I still still think it's a really interesting and, and... I think defensible casting decision, but I agree with you, Ryan, that it does help to have someone at the center of the movie that already has the audience in their corner, even if it's just from their. Uh, well, that's what Robert Pattinson in films, was yeah. for, don't you think? In this film, I mean, that was his role. Yeah, yeah, but he's also kind of like the the roguish supporting character who comes in near the end of the first act. Uh, like he's he's not at the center of the movie, whereas John David Washington from the B. I mean, he is the protagonist, you know. Okay. Well, let me ask you this then. So we've been dunking on this film a little bit. So Raymond, you yeah. said that this yeah. is one of the more um, impressive technical feats you've ever seen. You watch the behind the scenes stuff. Can we start yeah, delving into something? Like, the fact that they blew up a damn freaking Boeing, what was it, 767? Is that what it was? I think it was a 747. I, I mean, insane they, they though, talked right? about They talked about that. They showed them in the documentary. They showed 
them looking at a 737 and Christopher Nolan said that he looked across the the scrapyard where they bought the plane from and he saw a 747 and he pointed at it he goes why is that one so much bigger than ours and then they went over and they said yeah this is the one we need it must be nice if you're an aspiring filmmaker out there it must be nice to like hear these stories where you're like this guy basically just gets a blank check from Warner Brothers or whatever it is was it Warner is that what it is yeah yeah, and of this, course. Right? I mean, after what he said about the HBO Max deal, this might be his last movie with Warner Brothers. Uh, I, I mean, he'll he'll be fine. I'm sure he'll land on his feet. But they they've been sharing words in the press of, uh, uh, of late. Uh, I was just going to say that the airplane I thought was a huge waste of a blank check because you you kind of see it in the trailer and stuff for one, and then it's not that cool of an explosion in my mind for. Blowing up a whole plane. I thought it crashed out of the sky when I heard that they blew up a plane. I was like, "What?" Like I was thinking. Remember in <laughs> yeah. and remember in the Dark Knight Rises when they dropped that fucking capsule uh, when Bane at the very beginning is like hijacking. I thought it was going to be like a full on. I mean, oh, maybe that sequence is insane. That sequence is insane. I thought it was going to be yeah. something like that, but a seven four seven crashing out of the sky into the middle of like the Mojave or something no, like that. No, it bumps into a building. <laughs> it bumps um, into a building. That um. That sequence that's happening alongside the plane crash when they're when they're navigating the labyrinth uh, of all the vaults and trying to, you know, find the the time turner and they're fighting the backwards men, the, the backwards versions of themselves. Yeah. They they were saying on the on the feature, and this was one of the things that blew my mind more than anything in the actual movie was that, in order to choreograph those fight scenes, they would do a fight, play it in reverse, then someone would learn the fight in reverse and the other person's moves would be adapted to attack that person and have that those reverse moves work both in reverse and and then they would play that scene backwards and then the fight the, the people who were doing the fight would learn that scene like beat for it's just the, they kept having to twist it like turn the film over and over and over again and then learn the new the new physicality, all of them speaking backwards. They learned phonetically. They didn't just record them speaking forwards, then play it backwards. Like they did all this stuff where Kenneth Branagh was talking about how this was one of the, the most significant acting technique challenges of his life because he had to learn how to speak English backwards in a Russian dialect. Oh and my ju- gosh. just, it's, yeah. it, it, it's <laughs> that stuff that makes you think like, I'm glad that someone gets to do this. Yeah, I'm yeah, glad yeah, yeah. that someone gets to make this movie. It is such an audacious vision, but it just keeps coming back to that notion for me that's like, but what is it really in service? Okay, of? this like, is what, what I think. This is what I, this is what I ultimately think. Let's let's pause like a reset on the 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 production of films. Let's say that there are no new films that are in production right now, and we can choose what kind of films get made for the next hundred years, right? I would cut out ninety percent uh-huh. of the crap that's getting put out on Netflix, right? But you know what? I would not say let's not make Tenet again. Like I still want Tenet in in the vault of films that are being made. Whereas there's a lot of films that I don't even want them made, right? Like even if I sure. like I don't even I, I don't even like the fact that they're there. They're like messing with people's brains. They're like lowering our our tastes and our sensibilities. They're maybe even harmful for us. Like who knows? There's a lot of stuff that I'm like, man, I wish that that wasn't even there. But films like Tenet, like I feel like that that I still want it there. I still want it in the catalog. Well, it, yeah. it, it, if you're asking me, uh, do I want giant budget 
you know, weird Clever, sci-fi ori- yeah. original, original scripts. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I want all those all day, every day. But if you're asking if I want Tenet, no, zero <laughs> percent. I hated it. I I uh, agree. One, <laughs> I agree, Austin. That I do. I I would much rather live in uh, an environment where the film industry is constantly putting money into big original ideas like this more so than your adaptations, your comic books, reboots, whatever. Um, I think there's a place for, for everything. I think it's just, I, I wish that more money was allocated to original ideas. I, I agree with you. But maybe to what Ryan was saying, uh, if all of them end up like this enormous boondoggle, I think I, I would understand why studios stop investing. So okay, much. let's do this. I think this is a really weird, weird, if you cool think about film. It, like, yeah, like, like, uh, original sci-fi movies have have like Jupiter Ascending, huge flop with the Wachowskis. That was terrible. I'm trying to think. There's been a few other big ones. Where, oh, uh, the the uh, what about Cl- the Cloud Atlas? Name? That was another Wachowski. Oh, the, uh, oh, Cloud Atlas was huge, but even though that was an adaptation, but I'm thinking of the the thousand the the, the thousand clouds movie. Never. Mind. Oh, uh, Valerian and the, the Valerian. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, people, someone needs to make a fucking awesome one of these, or else people are going to stop writing these blank checks well, there, for three hundred million dollars. Well, I, I mean, I think. There are only a handful of filmmakers that get a blank check to begin with. There's Christopher Nolan and yeah. Quentin Tarantino. And I don't think Tarantino dreams this big unless he makes his ridiculous Star Trek movie or whatever he's been pitching. But I, I do think that there is a kernel in this that I would just, you know, far be it for me to be like, he didn't make the movie that I wanted him to make. Like, he doesn't need my fucking advice. Christopher Nolan's doing I'm fine. That. But there was a great <laughs> moment in this movie where... You know how the turnstiles keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger? They start as just, like, a one-person thing, then it's a whole room, and then it's, like, uh, they described it in the in the documentary as, like, a slot machine where the, the all the soldiers are stepping in and the thing starts rotating the other way. Um, rather than spinning around, it, it uh, spins vertically. Um, that moment, I remember thinking, like, this should be the first shot of the movie, is just this... This guy who has made his pledge to king and country, if he's a James Bond stand-in or whatever, being funneled into the unknown with a bunch of other soldiers all in their camo. Like, I remember in when I was at boot camp, I remember one of my drill instructors telling me, because I was a, a logistics MOS, he was telling me that your job is to try and think of all the ways that my job can go wrong. And I, I thought about this, I, th- I thought about that when I was watching that moment, when, when he was lined up with all those other guys about to go into the turnstile, and I was thinking to myself, like, God, wouldn't it be cool if this, if the big final set piece were the first scene of the movie, and it goes terribly fucking wrong, and then you know right from the beginning, here are the stakes, here is what we have to undo and try again, and, and this is how we're going to accomplish it this time go like, but there aren't any I, mistakes right that's the thing is they don't undo anything because what will happen will have had to have already happened yeah, no i know but the, but they have to at some point they they have to do the things wrong in order to find out how to do them right like that is the implication at the end because Robert Pattinson tells him, you know, before their Casablanca illusion that this is the end of a beautiful friendship, he he says like we get up to some stuff. We're I mean, the implication I thought at least was that 
beyond the events of this movie that those two have to constantly tinker and re-tinker with this formula until they're able to pull it off. And they even admit halfway through, they go, isn't it the fact that we're here right now, isn't that proof that we succeeded? And he goes, yeah, I'm pretty sure, but just to be safe, like, let's bring our fucking A game. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not like you're saying, like, source code, like, do it over again. You're saying, like, oh, this was the first effort, and then they kind of do it again, but throughout the timeline. Uh, yeah, yeah, essentially. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, gotcha. Just, like, c- keep keep tinkering, keep adding to the sauce and trying something new. Okay, that that didn't work. Um, uh, yeah. there, there's someone who just shouted out in the comments, KIDC121 says, I could watch the film in reverse and uh, that he thinks I would like it better. That may be the case. I actually I did wonder I will, this. I think I will revisit this movie. Like, for all of, for all of my issues with it, I, I think it is a, a really interesting, heady movie and there's a whole lot to like about it, which is why it it sucks that it, it it can't get the the fucking simple stuff right. Like he he's making this beautiful gourmet dish and then he's fucking microwaving dessert. It sucks. Like it just it's such a bummer. Ryan, last thoughts. Last but, thoughts on this and we'll jump into the mailbag. I was just going to make a comment on watching movies in reverse. Uh uh years ago at Fantastic Fest, they showed The Shining uh forward, but also we're showing it backwards at half half opacity so you're watching the movie but that's a really cool twice and then like you would you would see the where it met in the middle and then it would go and and apparently uh, there's conspiracy theorists who say that he planned it to have a a synchronicity or a a symmetry to it i mean if uh, nolan uh, were uh, really a good filmmaker and really as technically adept as we're saying he would do that because then that would actually be truthful to the title of the film so i think someone's gonna have to figure this out like is the film intentionally the length that it is because you need to play it forward and backwards and that something happens you know probably and then probably upside down too like i don't even know what that would mean because if you're really gonna do the (laughs) rotas square and then diagonally too because it's not just forward and backward but okay let's I, i watch every movie diagonally once at least. Yeah, exactly. You got it. <laughs> there are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. Okay, let's jump into the uh, mailbag here. If you want to contribute to the uh, Christopher Nolan Dunk Fest, you can go ahead and call us or you can email us. Or if you want to talk about Soul or Wonder Woman or anything else from our back catalog, go ahead and give us a call at one 8807 That's one 8807 and you can leave us a voicemail. So we're going to jump to Rose, who has some comments about Soul. Hey, show me the meaning. Uh, my name is Rose. I'm calling uh, from Ohio about the soul episode that I just listened to. I wanted to hear your guys' thoughts on, and I'm not going to go into it too deep because I want to hear your guys' thoughts on it, but um, they they only touched on it for like a second in the film, but it really, it really hit with me because um, I'm a long-time anxiety and depression sufferer um, about, you know, the whole world with the lost souls is the same 
place that you go to when you get in the zone, you know, when you're jazzing. And they show, like, a guy who's using a metal detector or something, I think, and he's like, I got to find it, got to find it. And he goes from being in the zone to being a lost soul. So it's almost like they're they're touching on this connection between being in the zone and an unhealthy, you know, obsession with things as well. So I, I wanted to know your guys' thoughts on that because that, that really, that really um, struck me when I was watching. I was like, oh, yeah, that's, yeah, <laughs> I get it. So um, I would love to hear your guys' thoughts on um, that moment in the film. And they, like I said, they don't really spend a lot of time on it, but they touch on it a little bit. So um, anyway, thank you. I <laughs> love your show. Awesome. Thank you so much, Rose. All right, gents, what do we think? Uh, first of all, shout out Ohio, anxiety, and depression. Rose and I have a lot in common. Um, I, uh, I'm, I'm glad that we got this voicemail because we didn't really get to talk too much about the, uh, the, uh, the, the nether world in our soul. Episode. We touched on it a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Um, I, uh, um, I, I love that part about it. I, but I also think I said even in that podcast that I disagreed with that a little bit and, and at least the implication that just because you're in the zone creatively or something doesn't mean that you can also be having this productive life all the time or, or, or that that being addicted to that feeling or something is some sort of a uh, can be a detriment which I, I guess some people can like obviously in the extreme of the guy who who's just uh, a sign twirler on the on the <laughs> on the road who that's his life. He just kind of never really um, got out of that mindset, which, yeah, I guess it's just different strokes for different folks. Some people can, some people can, uh, that's not a good lifestyle for, for others, some people, but then for other people, I think it could be. It's kind of my critique on that, on that part of the movie, but I get what their point is. And I, I thought it was pretty cool for a kid's movie. I mean, it's friggin' deep as hell for a kid's movie. Um, yeah, I did. I did wonder what the connection was between the lost souls in that barren wasteland that are kind of like covered over by the muck or whatever that like sort of doesn't allow their soul to actually flourish, but they're covered over by these layers and layers and layers of soot and dirt and whatever else it is, right? Um, I did wonder mm-hmm. if there is an intentional connection or point that the that the writers are trying to make between being in that space and then the sort of like elevated floating um, people that are in the zone that are kind of in the same region, um, but they're experiencing the world that they're in vastly differently. And I don't really know. I don't really know what the connection is, but it does seem that there's something like why why that particular choice? Raymond, do you have any thoughts on that? But Well, I do like that she brought up that sort of thin line between passion and obsession. Um, right. Because that that is kind of something that plays out with uh, with Joe in the movie, where he's he he's really single minded about his pursuit of his uh, his creative ambitions, and I think obviously a, a large part of the movie is about him learning to appreciate the little things and and those moments and and recognize that sometimes the journey is the point. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, as far as like when they when they show those people who are really you know bogged down in their pursuits and and there's always that implication that they are they're the ones holding themselves back i mean that this is something that uh 
funny enough, is kind of explored in, in some Christopher Nolan movies. Memento, absolutely, uh, is, mm. is, is about someone who's suffering from their own obsession. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it, it's an interesting point. Um, and I, I would say they, they probably bring that up to, to, to show Joe what he's at risk of becoming, um, or, or maybe a space that he occupied before he had died that he was never really aware of because he hadn't seen the before life at that point. Oh, so maybe he was a lost soul before, or well, something. Who who knows? Uh, he's definitely uh, got his chin in his chest a, a lot of the time early on. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a good movie. I'm I, I'm eager to watch that one again. I like that movie. A lot. It's it's freaking. There's so much to chew on. There's so much going on. It's again. It's so deep for a freaking kids film. Um, we did a deeper dumb on it. If you want to go check out the video, and I won't tell you what the conclusion was, but. You know, as we do with all of our deeper dumb <laughs> videos, we look at both sides of the deep spectrum and the dumb spectrum. And uh, so, yeah, so you can go check out that video. All right, we got to run out of here. Um, if you want to send us uh, a voicemail, please do so. One two one three five three four eight eight zero seven. You can also email us movies at wisecrack.co. That's movies at wisecrack.co, not .com. But we got to bounce for now. Ryan, where can people find you on the internet if they want to fight with you more about your terrible take on Tenant? I'm. Mm-hmm. Bring it on. Ryan Shorts on uh, YouTube and Facebook and that stuff. And uh, Funhouse, I'm on videos there once in a while. On Mondays, Ryan's Bargain Bin gets released on Mondays. So we just had Ladies Night on Ryan's Bargain Bin. Going to have Super Chill Dudes Day next week. And then we're going to have some other surprises. (laughs) Let me just say that. That sounds freaking great. uh, All right. Well, Raymond, I feel like we learned something new about you. I had no idea that you were in the military and you went to boot camp and stuff like that. So where I don't think I knew that either. (laughs) That's not something I talk about too much. I mean, to to clarify, just because I know this is a a really sensitive thing for a lot of folks who have served. I I was medically discharged about halfway through boot camp. I'm uh, I I never earned the title of Marine. Uh, It's you know, I don't I don't want folks to think I'm, you know, stealing valor or whatever. But it was. It, it, it's a long story, but uh, suffice to say, I, I learned a lot about myself uh, from that experience. Certainly. Well, we learned a little bit um, more about you, and sure. I appreciate whenever <laughs> we can learn a little bit more about our, our hosts on here. That's always wonderful. But Raymond, yeah. where can people find you on the internet so they can chat with you a bit more? Yeah, absolutely. You can uh, you can come to yell at me about uh, Tenet <laughs> or um, uh, learn a little bit more about me at uh, Twitter or uh, Letterboxd. I'm at Crematoria. Uh, and if you give me a follow, say hi. I'm always down to talk about movies. Amazing, and I'm on Twitter at Austin underscore Hayden. I do a philosophy podcast called Owls at Dawn, and my play opens up next week. Buy those streaming tickets. Go to truewestsydney.com. Oh, snap. We just got a big write-up in Time Out Sydney, which is a really nice like arts and culture section here in Sydney, But so they just did a nice write-up promoting the show. Um, if you don't know Sam Shepard, get on that madness. This is a crazy freaking play. I'm actually wearing like part of my costume because i literally just finished rehearsal before i had to jump on here and i'm freaking sweating and covered in beer yes, that's and the reason that's the reason we're late blame austin yes blame me <laughs> so but yeah go to truewestsydney.com and there's a, a streaming a couple streaming options that you can do to support your boy it's cheap as chips check that madness out you can get access to the video for up to a week after the performance so if the time schedule doesn't quite work with you that's cool just get on that madness support indie theater support your boy Take us out, Ryan. What do you got to say? Good goodbye, Ramblin. Kenneth Branagh couldn't say it better. 